Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. I'm here with Chase Renninger and Alyssa Ferguson, and they farm in South Carolina. Welcome. Hey, thank you so much. Great to be here, Michael. Yeah, tell us a little about your farm, the farm name, and how you got started. Well, I started the farm about four and a half years ago, and... uh, Yeah, so I guess the farm name, we have a couple little valleys in our farm, and I was trying to come up with the most generic name possible because I had a grand vision for the farm that eventually will be in supermarkets, and I didn't want it to be some permaculture hippie name. (laughs) I wanted it to be a professional name because I had a big dream, and uh, I figured, oh, you know, what are some of these names that are on milk cartons or something like that, and I just came up with a very generic bland name for the farm. (laughs) Um, Woodland Valley Farms. Yeah. And so I started four and a half years ago, but before that I was, uh, farming other people's property. I was a farm manager while I was getting my degree in agroecology in Arizona and studying permaculture and just a ton of stuff. I've been farming for 10 years now okay. since I was about 20 years old. And I did some contracting work just to be able to gain some skill sets. And for all the beginning farmers out there, if you have a small market garden or something and you want to become a bigger farmer, I highly recommend doing this path, which is getting some experience doing carpentry, getting experience doing plumbing, getting experience working on irrigation. You know, they're professional irrigation installation companies. You can work on their team for a couple months just doing regular labor and you'll learn a ton. Um, you know, learning mechanics, learning how to break an engine apart and put an engine back together in a big truck or you know, just there's so many skills and details that go into becoming those farmers that you see with a really nice farm. They have a ton of skills. And I think it's extremely valuable for beginning farmers to go out there and get these basic skills. Um, Me and Alyssa both have a similar upbringing in which we were, my uncle started getting into horses when I was like, I don't know, eight or nine. And, uh, I was out there. I was so excited. I remember just being a kid shoveling manure and I was, I would always uh, follow them in like the parade and the horse parade. And I would get all the manure and put it in the back of the John Deere Gator. And when I was a kid, I would drive out to the compost piles because none of the adults wanted to go dump the compost. And I just thought it was the greatest thing ever. (laughs) And Alyssa also grew up on a horse farm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So while I, I didn't, I didn't grow up farming per se, but you know, I was no stranger to agriculture. I had the Midwestern farm and dairy on the kitchen table growing up. And believe it or not, you know, you get when you're in an agricultural community. Um, I grew up around a lot of Amish people um, and that work ethic, I think, just instilled in me at a very early age. Like, oh, yeah, you know, you got to get up at six in the morning and crack the horse's water in the middle of winter. So they have it. Um, I have a different life path I kind of um went through a rebellious streak and was like I am not going to be a farm girl so the majority of my 20s were spent um in 
the city of Atlanta. I moved from Ohio uh, in my quaint little farm town to um, the big city of Atlanta. And I just basically floundered for a while during the recession and in the twenties, in my twenties. And then um, you were working at fine dining. And then I started working fine dining restaurants, which really started my journey into food. And just like having a deeper connection with food, like every day during um, lineup uh, for the restaurant, the chef would come out and talk about like some new crop or like, oh, we're not going to have arugula on the menu because the farmer I get arugula from had all of his crops washed away with these horrible Mm. storms. And um, or uh, the darn flea beetles, the flea beetles. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then I, I actually started working in a restaurant that had um, 10 to 15 different types of country hams on the menu at any given time. And that is when I started my obsession with pigs and learning all about pigs. Cause I just thought it was so cool that, um, I have a sommelier background too. So I thought it was so cool that each type of ham had a different flavor and it just blew my mind. So I started, I totally geeked out about that. And then little by little, um, I had some things happen in my life that um, made me um, want to get out of the restaurant industry. I was becoming very depressed and unfulfilled. And um, I had a lot of people close to me pass away, unfortunately, like mm. close friends. And I was just like, I, what am I doing here? I need to restart, reboot my life. And um, it all started with just having a little garden. I remember how proud I was of my first little box garden that I built. And then it led to getting some chickens. And then I bought pigs off Craigslist. And, <laughs> and then it was downhill from there. And then I, um, I ran my own farm before I met Chase. Um, I had my own little farming thing outside the city of Atlanta, um, like in the suburbs. And I ran pigs and chickens and had a little garden, but mostly um, the only thing I took to market was pigs and chickens, pork and chicken and eggs and eggs. And, yeah. um, and that's how we met. Um, yeah, we met castrating pigs because I knew Alyssa's <laughs> mom. She was friends with my uncle actually. And we're only two and a half hours from Atlanta and I was not breeding pigs. So I, I was at one point breeding pigs. It didn't go according to plan. I just didn't have really quality genetics. And so I was buying piglets at the time and Um, I went out to help Alyssa castrate and I said, Hey, I'll come out there and help you castrate, but you got to cut me a deal for driving two and a half hours. So we cut pigs and fell in love. And (laughs) that's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Give us a, that's great to hear your backstory. And I, I think something you said there, Chase, is that you have to do, especially in those early years, there's so many different skills you have to be good at. Um, you know, if you see some of these farmers that have built those million, million and a half dollar farms, now they outsource a lot of that. But back at the beginning, they were doing the electrical, they were doing the plumbing, they were doing everything on the farm. Because at the scale you're doing at that beginning, if it's like a 15 minute job and to get, get a contractor to look at it first and then get them out there to do it. It's, your, it's more of your time and hundreds and hundreds of dollars of their time to do this very small task. Yeah, absolutely. And so all the, the majority of the contracting I personally do at the farm 
And me and my dad do a lot of the work and stuff. And let me tell you guys, you know, you see everybody on Facebook, you can't do that overnight. Like it takes years of practice. And I see a lot of people succeed with that when they're older, because they have, they've just had the time to slow their mind down. When you're in your twenties, you want to get everything done. A lot of these farmers who are new and starting and they're in their thirties or forties, they're able to start a professional farm just because they're a little bit older, they're wiser. (laughs) (laughs) that wise aspect I think is so important so talk to us about your business model because your business model changed drastically during the pandemic and uh, you have something very different now so talk to us about first can you give us an overview of like how the system works and then we can dive into every single enterprise okay so um we were a um we had a small CSA to begin before COVID-19 hit Uh, we maybe had 10 or 10 to 12 members and we, but we were predominantly, um, uh, $100 farm, yeah, we were predominantly farmer's market people. Like we would go to the farmer's market and we were always kind of scouting new little markets to, that popped up to have new revenue streams. But every weekend on Saturday, we would pack up early, early in the morning and then go to the farmer's market. And that was how we made our income. And we had CSA pick up at the farmer's market booth. Yeah, this is kind of like your your traditional farmer's market CSA type thing. Um, But there was a lot of issues that we ran into with that. A, weather. You know, you go to the yep. farmer's market, though, if it's if it's cold, too cold, it's always too cold, too hot, too wet, something, you know, we're in the south and the weather's beautiful here all the time, but you'd be surprised how. Uh, Not all the time, Melissa. <laughs> <laughs> you'd be surprised how, how how light rain will just totally make people not come to the market. Yeah. And then um, after, when COVID-19 hit, we were like, we were like, what are we going to do? Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. Like, we're not we can't go to farmer's markets anymore. I think we went once with all of the masks and the social distancing. I think we made like $200 or something. And it was just like, we can't do this anymore. We got to figure something else out. But the the one important thing is in, about our farmer's markets here in South Carolina, we do not have huge farmer's markets. And I have been to all the good farmer's markets. I've been to the DuPont Circle Farmer's Market in Washington, yep. DC. I've been to the Santa Fe Farmer's Markets. I have I've toured tons of huge markets and we have the worst farmer's market I've ever seen. (laughs) We have hundreds of vendors, but a lot of them are just like food trucks, candies, arts and crafts. And there are only about two farmers there. And uh, we were one of them. I was there for years and years. Yeah. And you would think, you would think that the that that would increase the mm-hmm. traffic because there was so little farmer competition. But it's just I just think that in the South, there's still we're still doing a lot of education about how, where to buy good mm-hmm. food. Anyways, long yeah. story short, COVID-19 hit. Um, I thankfully um, about maybe six months before COVID, I had reorganized our website so that I had some little links um, for people to sign up. Um, so I could at least get emails and if they were interested in joining the CSA, they could get on a waiting list. Well, um, I already had the system set up. So I told Chase, well, look, I'll reword a couple things. Um, and, and all of a sudden we had all of these people joining our CSA instantly, instantly, like as soon as COVID hit, as soon as the grocery stores were out of, Mm. um, produce and meat um we had people 
our phone was ringing all the time for the people trying to get on our waiting list. And we just had to tell them, look, like I can't service everybody, but we'll get on the waiting list. And the cool part about the waiting list is it gives you a chance to almost like trim the fat of your customers. um, Because if people are serious about it, and you mess, you email them a month later and say, "Hey, I have space on my list. Mm-hmm. Um, would you like to join? Here's the two hundred twenty-five dollar deposit form." Blah blah blah. The people who want to be in the CSA truly and are excited about it, they'll become members of our CSA. They'll give us the deposit immediately, and and, uh, and that's what we really want. We really want to have customers who <clears throat> are super excited to be in the CSA. It's not a chore for them. They want, they want to be a part of it because um, it is expensive. Our CSA model, um, we dropped it from $100 a week to $75 a week, which is like kind of a nice middle ground. Between between, 50 and 100. Yeah. And, um, and then we're able to supply a beautiful array of products from our farm every single week. We offer 25 20 to 25 dollars worth of vegetables mm-hmm. um a dozen eggs and um, eight dollars of mushrooms yeah uh, anywhere from a half a pound to a pound of mushrooms and you get um around 30 to 45 dollars worth of meat depending on yeah yeah everything that we have yeah so we have we just kind of do a simple add and subtraction model where mm-hmm. so say we have like uh, less crops coming out of the garden. Maybe we have $18 worth of produce this week. Then maybe we'll throw in an extra pack of sausage or a little bit more mushrooms so that everything at totals and tallies up to be $75 worth. And I think that people really like the, um, the variety and the fact that it changes from week to week. And, um, you know, of course, you know, occasionally people are picky eaters but for the most part um our csa is really supportive super supportive oh my goodness like we're so grateful they essentially become members of our family like Mm -hmm. extended family like Mm -hmm. the majority actually when we got married in october um half the people at our wedding were csa members who had supported us so awesome yeah but this model is really great where we have such a variety of stuff because it really does allow you to add and subtract as Alyssa said so to all the farmers out there it you know you might have a ton of beef this season and not so much pork and you can substitute a little bit more beef in here oh I have so much beef you know what I need to give them some variety and let's go to the Cornish cross chicken or let's go to the freedom ranger and get some harvesting in at eight weeks, you know, and then we'll have like turn in that variety. And we're always thinking about how we can add little things in here and there. Mm-hmm. And I don't think everybody has the ability to start a mushroom operation because, well, that's delegated to our business partner, Ben and his entire crew okay. that run our, um, our whole mushroom operation. We have a, a laboratory for sterilization and, bagging proceed like we have automatic bagger machines like they've received over a hundred thousand dollars i believe at this point in grants from the state of south carolina to do this uh work and everything is in pharmaceutical grade shipping containers okay so my and what i did before i had them when i was just running the csa by myself i delegated that part of the farm out to another farm that grew mushrooms they went out of business so we came up with the idea of starting the mushroom operation 
but yeah ben they, so. they but ben our our partners ben and rebecca they truly do everything with that like we are really hands off with that because mm. we you know it's it, and it's a little bit well we we don't really like working inside shipping containers all day like we want to be outside, outside. you yes. know so that's um delegate 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 yeah and they handle all of that um which is great so we go out to a fridge we grab a box of mushrooms and um off we are and off we go <laughs> very cool but yeah if you can you know if you have a csa that's diverse like us and you can just delegate one enterprise out to another farm and have a co-op model highly recommend it because that's one thing off of your plate yeah now do people pick up on the farm or do you deliver Oh yeah. So that is, um, the key to our CSA model right now is we deliver to every CSA member. And I know that that sounds crazy, but we didn't really have a choice when COVID hit. Um, so right now we have about 42 CSA members total. And, um, we decided to deliver because we realized that there was just so many people who would never Mm -hmm. leave their house during COVID. And then what we found out is by delivering, we are essentially empowered with how we use our time. So we deliver in the dark, we can <laughs> deliver in the dark. And because it is a great service for people, um, I think that they, it gives us greater flexibility. So say it's pouring down rain. Um, it's really hard to deliver, make deliveries when it's pouring down rain and in traffic in the, in the middle of Columbia in the city. Um, so we'll, we'll message all of our customers and say, Hey, um, tomorrow. weather's really bad or Hey, the pigs broke out. <laughs> um, yes. I can't come and do deliveries today. We're coming tomorrow, you know, and um, that gives us some flexibility as opposed to if there's an accident or something happens on a Saturday and you're going to the farmer's market every Saturday. And if you don't go to market, you don't make money, mm -hmm. then, um, you're, you know, we just, we, we have a lot more empowerment and how we get money now. And we're more in charge of that. Yeah, I mean, we, thing. there's so much predictability in this, in our income model right now, um, I wouldn't do it another way. And eventually we, when we're going to get into this, we're going to change our business model as we get older and we already have this entire thing planned out. So, well, should we talk a little bit about the enterprises, how much food we grow? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> let's do that. So you do a wide variety of stuff. Talk us through a little bit first. Let's talk into the meat because you do chicken, beef, pork, lamb. Okay. So as um, Jordan Green talks yep. about a lot, at farm builder, you need to have a backbone to your enterprise when you're starting your farm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what that is for us are, is pigs. We raise a lot of forest raised pigs. We have 80 acres of forest and we're continuously fencing in more and more and more using the timeless fencing system. Mm -hmm. Um, so our backbone is pigs. We have about 200 Berkshire and Berkshire also cross pigs at our farm right now. Yeah, we don't, we uh, stick to a specific breed of pig. Um, okay. because they, we really like the, um, the Berkshire Asabaugh very, but most of our pigs are three quarter Berkshire with a quarter Asabaugh. Um, and it works out really well. So our pit, we, and then we also have, so we raise them in the forest, but we also have the Joel Salatin style, um, 
composting system inside. So we have a um, 40 by 135 foot long barn that has concrete mm-hmm. in it that used to be from the old dairy. And we converted this into our pig composting system. So we can bring pigs up to load them into our trailer and we can also use it as a deep bedded mulch system. So, and I want everybody to keep this in mind when you are building your pig system, you need to watch out for the chemicals. If you are going to be an organic farm, even if you're not certified organic, there are a lot of herbicides inside of the hay that you might throw into the barn. Cause we throw giant round bales in mm-hmm. to our barn as bedding and uh, we mix it with all kinds of different stuff. So we make our own custom bedding that the pigs turn and churn into our compost mixture, which consists of chicken manure, cow manure, uh, wood chips, shavings, and old round bales. So when we get our round bales, they're like 36 months old. And then our composting system is in the barn for six months. And then once we pull the compost out, it's turned and churned for eight to eight months to 12 months. So we're getting like, you know, all of our stuff is like three to four years old. So any herbicide that might be in that hay, it's completely gone at that point. Mm -hmm. So when you get fresh hay and you're throwing fresh hay in from that season, a lot, almost every single farmer out there, if you're buying hay into your farm, it's going to have herbicides in it and it's going to be really harmful for at least 18 months. Gotcha. Yep. So make sure that you are, uh, yeah, either you're going to have to work with a farmer to make sure they're not spraying it. Just be very, very careful on that. Or just have to turn it, as you said, for multiple years to get rid of that. Yeah. Because some of those herbicides are nasty and um, we've definitely seen farmers get herbicide damage in their, and and especially it affects vegetables. Very Absolutely. And if you get compost, you're buying in compost or whatever, you can use any type of legume and put it in a microgreens tray and, you know, test out your legume germination. And if all of your legumes are dying, then you got some yep. issues with toxicity in your compost system. <clears throat> but yeah, we, we make all of our own compost for the garden and we're able to do that through the pig system. And the only reason why we are able to grow our market garden is because of the pigs, because we are in a location that has the worst sandy, dry, crunchy, no topsoil. Like yeah. it's just, our market garden is an old soybean field that was in a monoculture for many, many, many years. There's zero topsoil, almost zero organic matter when we got there. And I knew I had to build this composting system from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like beach sand, you know? Yeah. Um, and so you've been able to add all that compost coming off of the animals, which is yeah. awesome. And yeah. it's massive amounts. Like it, this is not a small system. You're talking about like front end loader, front end loaders yep. only. Like we're not using wheelbarrows or anything like that. And our, it's almost too much for our tractor right now. We have like an 80 horse Kubota, yep. um, but we're, we're going to be upgrading to a skid steer with a, a bigger bucket. And... Yeah. Yeah. That's so nice. And it's a potential income opportunity too, because there aren't very many local, like high quality compost makers. Mm-hmm. Um, and our, you know, the pigs, um, are essentially work as sifters, you know, yeah. like the compost that we create, um, it is not machine sifted, but it looks like it is because it's just completely, um, chopped, chopped up. Yeah. Now you've also got chickens that live in the barn too. Yes. Uh Um, We have um, anywhere from, I think right now we have about a hundred laying hens um, and we kind of follow um, 
we we keep a, a a strong pecking order so we keep older hens um okay and, and that kind of like teach the younger ones and every year we buy 50 or 60 more laying hens to kind of replenish the flock um we call after about two years call the chicken the, the um the main laying we use the nouveau gens um as our main layers um and we have them on like kind of a free range system right now. Um, we have two different hen houses um, and the chickens kind of just help clean up the farm and um, keep the pig barn like scratched through. Yep. Yeah. Um, we have, but we do, we have two mobile coops that we can move anywhere around the farm. And then we have, yeah. So it helps us manage the roosting manure. But as our, it accumulates. our like older chickens and our older ducks, they, primarily hang out inside of the barn and uh it really helps with the elimination of flies and odors and anything else because they're always scratching getting bugs out and maggots and anything else that comes into the compost yeah in, in stage one so yeah that's kind of the barn system um and if you want really any information about this animal integration system just go get introduction to permaculture the first book by bill mollison it's amazing um but yeah we and then after we kind of train all the pigs on the electric, we take them down into our forest and they're finished off into the woods. And in an ideal situation, we have all of our hickory nuts dropping off the trees and we're able to finish the pigs on hickory. Yeah. Um, we have really nice, good quality non-GMO feed. And uh, yeah. Yeah, we that. work really closely with our, um, you know, like I said, the backbone of our business is our pig operation. We Right now we have about... Uh, a little less than 200 pigs on the farm um, in their varying stages. We're breeding year round. Mm -hmm. um, we have, um, we basically are going through 10 to 12 pigs a month right now. And we're looking to increase that. We're going to be going through 10 to 12 when we add our new CSA members. Yeah. So, gotcha. yeah. Um, so we work very closely with our processor to make sure that everything works out timing, uh, the timing for all of those things works out well. Um, and, you know, I encourage people, it is tricky when you're first starting out to get your processor to respect your time mm -hmm. and to respect um, what you're doing. Um, because when you first start out, you know, you look like small change, bringing a couple pigs in at a time. Um, but as we started to grow, we really tried to build a good relationship, even if it's bringing like little gifts to the counter lady mm -hmm. to make her like our large anchor, to, <laughs> wine, whatever. You <laughs> yes. Uh, to yeah. bribe, uh, bribery. No, I'm just kidding. Grease the wheels. <laughs> no, but I mean, but I, it is true. You know, well, I think a lot of, um, young farmers and I might have made this mistake up in the beginning too a lot of um these people that you need to work with in rural communities are they're old school you know yeah. and you have to respect that they're old school and that they um you know they're maybe they don't use email or maybe they don't accept credit cards you know our feed mill for example um they're wonderful mennonite farmers and um you know we have to write a check that's just mm -hmm. check, or cash. check or cash that's yeah. it you know um so just respecting your middleman because we do not have a viable business right now without either of those mm -hmm. people our feed mill 
and our processor. So whatever you have to do to encourage good relationship with those people. So if they have problems in their business model and they're not able to help us, they tell us that they mm -hmm. say, hey, look, you guys are going through more grain than we, we can provide for right now. They give us a heads up at a, so that we can you know, figure it yeah. out. Yeah, no, that's such a key point right there is it's all about farming is so much about the community. Um, yeah. Just here locally, we've uh, just mentioned before we got in the call, we're going through two different development plans, one for our farm and one for our farm store. And, you know, I was able to, when we had the meeting, call a couple folks in town and say, hey, I'd love if you could show up at the meeting because it's kind of like, you know, show some like, uh, you know, that you're for the project. And the owner of our local uh, hardware store, not hardware store, they're a lumber yard. It's a full lumber yard they've got there and design service and stuff. He was like, sure, I'll come down. So he came down and it's just one of those things of building that community of those in the community that you can trust. And, uh, you know, I needed a trucker for something the other day. And uh, so I walked down there and said, hey, do you guys have, and he gave me a name. And, he, and so it's one of those things of building that local community because you're not an island. You can't be an island. And mm -hmm. with that aspect too, you just said is also of building those relationships. So it's not only of having those people that numbers, but when you call, will they pick up the phone and what will they do for you? Um, exactly. And that is so important. Totally. Absolutely. So um, back to our enterprises, we have a grass fed, um, we have grass fed meat. We do grass-fed cows. We have a herd of what about twenty cows? A little over twenty. Yeah, we have more calves dropping. So we are we have small herd of beef cows. Mm -hmm. um, Chase started originally with Longhorn cows, and then we kind of transitioned because they're so slow growing. And what a lot of people don't realize is Longhorn cows are naughty. They break fences. They can jump fences. They will gore you with their horns. They are. It's all happening. I mean. I I'm not going to say all longhorn cows are bad, but we definitely most longhorn cows are bad. <laughs> They're bad cows. Um, so we just wanted to switch at least temporarily um, while we were kind of getting our the rest of our hog operation on the ground. Um, we switched to pretty docile black Angus cows because they're mm -hmm. fast growing. They have very few labor issues um, and. That's what we're doing right now. We're currently switching to um, South, Pole South Poles because I was ask that's you about what that. Great yeah. Judy uses. Yeah. And yeah. Um, we have a South Pole bull right now that is gorgeous. And we're so excited to spend a little bit more money and buy really beautiful heifers over the next few seasons. Um, yeah. Here's the thing, guys, with starting your beef cattle operation, you can buy a Angus cow or whatever at fourteen hundred dollars it'll be decent um but the thing is you start spending more money on these beef cows and later in life will you know the cows are going to be paying their dividends yeah and it really makes a difference you're talking about almost a year of production that you'll you're going to be ahead on and that means let's you let's say you take that over a 40-year period you're going to be 40 years ahead of the competition because you have cows that are finishing at 18 months or 24 months on grass compared to something like a Dexter cow or just a slow growing commercial cow. And it might take you 30 to 36 months to grow that cow out. So we want to be at that 24 month range mm -hmm. and granted any cow that you have, that's older, it's going to have a little more flavor, but as far as production, we want an animal that's going to perform on 
uh, you know, a daily rotationally grazed system that's 100% grass and it's going to perform really well. So at this point, we're willing to invest all of our money that we have into quality grass fed beef genetics. Yes. Mm-hmm. And now, we, we, oh, go ahead. Yeah. And beef is not an easy enterprise to get in because you're, you're playing the long game there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, remember, guys, when you're getting one cow, if you get a heifer and a lot of people are going to start with heifers, which is a young female cow that in um, that has not given birth yet, you're going to be buying something that's weaned. Maybe it's going to be six to nine months old um, and you're not going to be making money off that cow for like four to five years. Mm-hmm. So yeah. for, for us, we see it as our retirement vision and a passion of ours and something that's going to be paying our salary when we're old. Um, so, you know, a lot of people in the conventional world want to put their money into investments in a 401k or a mutual fund or something. And we want to invest in regenerative agriculture. So we believe that we should put our money into our local community in in supporting local businesses, in growing grass-fed beef, growing fruit trees, growing timber crops, etc. Yeah. Um, in conjunction with the beef cows, we have a flock of fifty sheep. Um, and fifty-five. They, we just had five. Oh yeah, lambs. that's right. Um, <laughs> so we're really excited to kind of see our sheep program growing. You know, and I will tell people when you're first starting out, doing grass-fed sheep is really difficult. It's sad. It's kind of sad because we lost a lot of lambs in the beginning, Mm. Um, kind of culling and allowing nature to take its course. You know, of course we didn't want to lose lambs, but when you're breeding for parasite resistance, which we were, you know, we lost a lot of lambs initially, and now we have parasite resistant hybrid sheep, um, hybrid sheep. Um, mm-hmm. we do a variety of black belly Barbados. We do Same. St. Croix and Katahdin and every year we, so what we do is we keep the females, we keep all of the females on our farm and then, and grow them out so that they can breed. And then every year we buy a new ram. Um, gotcha. so we'll slaughter the, the ram and then, um, we'll, we'll buy a new or we sell it. I mean, or we sell it. Yeah. We have really nice Rams now. So yeah. selling our Rams, it's like $500 plus a piece. So, yeah. yeah. So, okay. So let's, so we got through most of the enterprises, I think, um, just meat trying to think birds. meat birds. Yeah, we, yeah. How do so you do we, your meat birds? We do a combination. Um, so I like, I really like freedom Rangers. I think they dress out and they taste amazing. Um, and I also like them because they're, they, they remain healthier. Um, mm-hmm. So if I, you know, we have a lot on our plate. Sometimes we don't get the time to butcher right when the chickens are ready. So if I need to wait a couple of weeks to slaughter until my schedule opens up, um, I can do that. And that, that has worked as uh, for our flexibility. Um, I've the freedom rangers. The key. Yeah. We also raise Cornish crosses though, and we keep them in a salad and style um, chicken tractor yeah. and that gets pulled every day. And sometimes we keep the freedom rangers and the chicken tractors too. It just depends on, you know, in the winter time, you know, uh, a free range system can be kind of tricky. You have young birds, they sleep, they will try to sleep outside, yada, yada, mm-hmm. yada. Mm-hmm. So in the winter time, we tractor a lot more birds. Um, and then during like the colder weather. And then, um, in the summer we have more free ranging setups. Um, so the birds can kind of, just do their thing and 
Yeah. We're in the process right now of actually building a really large hoop house style welded chicken coop on skids. Yep. Like you see it, uh, Paul Grieve has it pasture bird, but we're custom building it with our welder and all that. At the yeah. Farm. We got a really nice welder. Um, nice. So <laughs> yeah, we're in the process of doing that and that'll hold like 500 birds. And our big limitation right now is we're only able to do a thousand birds illegally in South Carolina. So we're delegating the butchering process now to, um, our our processor yeah. Um, it's, yeah it's a big step for us to do that i i have butchered thousands of birds at this time in my life and i'm kind of over it <laughs> <laughs> just like i'm really good at it and yeah. she's like oh well you're so good at it and it's like no honey i'm i'm like yeah, don't, don't want to. You're that. good at it, but yeah. it doesn't mean you like it. I mean, that, yeah, I mean, like yeah. when we were at Polyface, we were butchering, well, some days would be 600 and we'd do twice a week. So that was like about a thousand a week, if not 1200 a week. So you just got really good at it. I mean, when you do that for 16 weeks straight, um, yeah. just, that muscle memory you build for, for eviscerating birds. I mean, if you can't eviscerate in 30 seconds or less, then you get, you get moved off of evisceration. Yeah. Totally. Um, so, you know, being able to do that and we would have, you know, we would have uh, competitions and stuff to see who could do the fastest. Um, and I, I think I would usually win those, but mine were usually the messiest too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think, I think the part the, you know, the, the actual butcher day kind of, I always, I, it's, that's always the thing that I procrastinate on. Mm. And like, that's to me, you know, of course, suck it up and do it when you're starting out. Right. Yeah. yeah. Which is what I did for years. It's just suck it up and do it. But now that we are growing and we're trying to manage our time in a, an intelligent way, I don't want to feel defeated because I procrastinate on something something repeatedly over and over and over again. Like to me, eventually you have to look at your life and say, okay, cool. This is something I actually really don't want to do anymore. And um, I want to do more market gardening. Yeah. I mean that I want to have a good life and I don't want to feel like a slave to my farm right now. So let's break into that a little bit because that's something like in our online business here that we've actually kind of like our team, our team is growing now. I think we have like six people on, on um, that work for us. Um, But well, it's actually more than that, but like yeah, but we're, yeah, we keep hiring people US based. Um, but one of the things we realized is like we were doing this promotion and I kept pro- procrastinating, kept procrastinating on it. And we, we sat down as a team, we're like, okay, why did that happen? Because it affected how the promotion went and affected all these other things. And we realized, you know, I just don't like that part of the job. Yeah. And at this point in the business, they need me to focus on what I'm good at and what I like. Um, and it's the same thing on your farm. So if you keep procrastinating on something like, how can I either outsource this, or is this not a good fit for our farm anymore? Um, and sometimes it also is just the system. So maybe it's something like sometimes you just need to get a new piece of equipment or something to make it a lot more efficient and make it, you know, uh, better again. But processing is one of those things that I know why butchers get paid so much. At least exactly. Yeah. The guys in the kill room sometimes don't get paid well, but the guy, a good meat cutter gets paid really, really well because they're obviously handling a thousands of dollars worth of product a day, but also it's not necessarily a fun job. They're working in a cold room for eight hours with uh, fatty meat. Yeah, exactly. Totally. And, you know, and we enjoy the going back to like kind of the homestead, you know, we yeah. have, we run a homestead and we enjoy 
the processing of animals on our farm you know we we kill and butcher and process all of our wait one second let me say something about this procrastination thing so (laughs) you know when you're procrastinating on something whether that's in the garden or doing a fence project or whatever that is looming over your mind the entire time and that mental block will prevent you from being able to see other things going wrong at the farm or being able to succeed at other things at the farm so when you can eliminate that little mental block and pinch it's going to free you up so much mentally and give you so much clarity to be able to succeed in other ways yeah you know yeah i mean every morning i make a list of things that I have to do, things that I need to do, and things that are on the back burner until I get the gumption to do it. And, um, you know, there's pros and cons to making a list every morning, because you always know what you didn't do the day before that you wanted to do. And sometimes, you know, mentally, that can take a toll after a while. Um, So is this a paper list? Or is this a, a digital list? No, it's just a, I have my, it's just a notebook, a plain old notebook. Every single morning before we start work, Alyssa and I have a cup of coffee and we have a morning meeting for 30 minutes to an hour about exactly what we have to do. We have all of our, we get all of our financials together whenever we need it during that morning period. And we go over all of our numbers like, oh, hey, we're going to be a little bit short on cash this week. What can we do? Let's sell some piglets right now to be able to cash flow this various aspect of the farm or whatever. Which, and we have less of that now. Yeah. But when you're starting out, it can be, you know, you're, you're sometimes it feels like you're robbing Peter to pay Paul, but like you're what? investing in your business. And that's what we did. We made a lot of sacrifices and we were broke for a really long time. And now we're not broke. So that's yes. good. It takes a long time, lots of grit to get through this permaculture style business model, because you're all like, there's a lot of money that goes into putting into all of these different investments in the farm and everything like that. Well, animals are, I feel, this is my personal opinion. Animals are never as profitable as the horticulture slash vegetable side in an enterprise budget. I mean, like you can take a six seeds, which are a penny each, put them in a six pack Mm -hmm. with 17 cents of soil, grow them in a greenhouse for four weeks and charge $3 and 50 cents for that. Exactly. A pot of bamboo is $50 for a pot of bamboo, guys. I mean, come on. <laughs> yes, exactly. But they, people are like, your chicken's not $4.99 pre-cooked delivered to my door. No, it's not because Costco does that as a lost leader to get you to the back of the store because you're going to buy everything else along the way. Exactly. So they, yeah, I mean, that's the, the problem with this, that, that, that dichotomy is people just don't understand the true economics of food. Um, and one thing you did say, not to kind of go off too much, but you did talk about the education side of things, but you like really enjoy that open dialogue. She can make sure they understand, you know, daikon radishes or gel bacon or lamb shank. So talk to us a little bit about the educational side of things. Well, yeah. So um, I wrote recently, I actually wrote like a little cookbook. Mm-hmm. Um, it was for our local food for, bank. It was for our local community food bank. And it was basically just like how to cook when you're broke. Um, but what I put in there, was basic recipes for like that a a a homestead would do you know roasting a chicken and it doesn't take a whole lot of time yeah Yeah. but you'd be surprised a lot of people don't really know how to cook they don't know how to throw a bunch of stuff on a dutch oven 
and put it on low and let it cook for the whole day. I do not, we spend a lot of time cooking, but I am not a slave to my stove. I let it work for me. You know, we live in a convenience culture and all of our customers are convenience based people. They don't want to have slow. They don't want to be in the slow food community and we kind of make them. We, we force them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But a, a lot of things. So, you know, we are going through a lot of pigs on our farm and anybody who raises pigs will know there is a lot of, you know, nose to snout or nose to tail products that a typical person doesn't want to eat. Um, You know, trotters, pigtails, pig heads, um, all of the awful and hearts and all of that. That's what we eat. That's what we eat. But, um, you know, it's, it's just, it's interesting. Um, Right now we actually have some people, I think, because of like, maybe it's their lifestyle or how they cook. They, you know, they say that they have high cholesterol, but we're like, Oh, um, how much alcohol are you drinking and how much sugar are you eating? Yeah. You know, and (laughs) and, some healthy fats. (laughs) Well, and, and a lot of people don't realize too, is that, you know, you can't just eat muscle meat all the time. You know, you really need to eat your collagen. You need to Mm. eat, um, liver Mm. and, um, skin and all of these things that you know even if it's just throwing it in a pot and letting it simmer you know like those there's a lot of vital minerals and nutrients in food that i think people kind of forget about Mm -hmm. Um, and we know about it because we're like total geeks who obsess over nutrition um but our customers aren't so it's our job as farmers to also be a little bit of their nutritionist and make mm-hmm. sure that they're getting healthy shares that are well-rounded with all of these micronutrients yeah. and good you know food well, for the that's, kids. that's actually a really interesting thing because obviously you know we live here in a very blue collar community we're in ohio i mean very red state um so it's just the level of nutrition and nutritional thinking is just very different than when we were like in more some of the east coast uh, cities um, and so that's one of the things we're really talking about is how do we communicate, how do we educate our, our customers who our community, who they're fit the top grossing store in our town is the local dairy queen. Yeah, totally. So, yeah. So getting in touch with those new, nutri- I mean, we'll do obviously that ourselves, but I think we're, our goal is to start focusing on working with some local nutritionists and uh, feed each other. So they send customers our way, we send customers their way, and then just kind of work uh, together. But totally. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Our, our market garden or our market manager, our market garden manager right now um, actually is a, uh, a health coach. Mm. So yep. his, he coaches people online and stuff like that and builds nutrition plans for them. And so we kind of have like an on staff, little life coach, health coach right now, which is cool. And And it's, I mean, as a farmer, it's important to practice what you preach. Like, I'm not going to pretend like I haven't gone to the drive through on a long road trip. You know what I mean? But um, (laughs) we all have our guilty pleasures. (laughs) Yeah. Like, okay, we're, we're, we've all done it. Don't act like you haven't. Um, The majority, but the majority of the food that we eat is extremely healthy and we grow almost all of our own food. We consume like 95% of the food that we grow. And Alyssa and I are really into global cuisine and educating ourselves and what people are eating and developing nations and poor places around the world and we try to like recreate that in our like little old dairy barn kitchen (laughs) we have so much fun with our cooking and our food in the house and we just love it so much yeah I have a, a ham curing in my 
enough old French armoire right now. <laughs> so. Oh, very cool. Very cool. <laughs> So, um, so, oh, one of the things I wanted to yeah. mention about connecting to customers, um, and this is just like a simple little marketing tool that I use that might be helpful for people starting out. Um, there's an app that I use that allows me to send a personal, like a, an individual text message to as many people as I want. Um, so it's not a group text. Um, and I can create like a really nice text message and yep. send it all out. And I best basically do a blast to, um, CSA. to CSA members. So for right now, we have three CSAs. We do Aiken, Augusta, and Columbia. And I have them all organized in my Hit em Up. Nice. It's called Hit em Up. It's a little app. And I do pay for it. It's not a free app, but to me, it is such a lifesaver. Yeah. Um, so I'm able to formulate a text message saying, hey guys, I'm about to leave for deliveries. Um, uh, my chicken stopped laying this week or where I'm low on eggs or I dropped a giant basket of eggs on my foot. Yeah. And so we don't have eggs this week. <laughs> like there's mistakes that happen sometimes on the farm and um, you can just communicate. I can that. communicate it. And it actually gives, I think it really helps um, our customers understand that we're not Instacart and yes. that we're growing food for them. And we're beginning farmers yeah. at the same time. And, oh, and then real quick, what's the other app that we use for our delivery route? Uh, Placemaker. Okay. So, so, yeah. So we are able to, you know, organization has been kind of hard for me, at least on the business side of things, because I've never really been very good at that. But um, we're getting better. We're, I'm getting better. And I'm, I'm really starting to delegate. Um, there's a lot of really cool technology out there that, um, you know, it just research it and look and find out like I was thinking in my head once like oh, gosh there's got to be an app that can help me not mm -hmm. do this dumb group text because I hate group texts yes, <laughs> you know? yes, yes everyone's responding and ah yeah yes. yeah all right I'm gonna redirect here and get back to our meat birds real quick let's just summarize this meat birds we are moving into the bigger coop system. Guys, please just move over to a bigger coop system. Yes. Because why are you going to move 10 tractors a day when you can move one tractor and fill up one giant it's, water? Yeah. Yes. It's just ridiculous. The time savings will pay for themselves. And it kills your back. Um, yes. Next, yeah. we're going to go into our market garden. So as we mentioned before, the pigs and the chickens and our giant composting barn system that provides the compost and the fertility to the market garden. So we have a, we run experiments in the garden all the time. So the majority of our garden is in no-till production. And if we loosen the soil, we just use a broad fork. We have all mm -hmm. of that kind of stuff as a typical market garden does. Yep. You know, we use the um, Jang cedar. We have a tilther to prep the top of our bread beds and potentially integrate our custom fertilizer blends into whatever crop we're growing there. Um, we have the new Johnny six point cedar I just got. I'm so excited about it. They just yeah, came out with that Yeah, I'm very interested to look at that one. How does it look? Um, well, I ran um, a couple beds of carrots and they haven't germinated. And I put them next to my Jang cedar and the Jang germinated. So I totally screwed up somewhere in there. I <laughs> figure, figure it all out. But uh, yeah. We, yeah, the Jang cedar is a key in the garden. The, the tilter really is a game changer for us when we just do that top little soil prep. Um, and we can yep. integrate our compost or we can mulch on top of that, um, whatever kind of works for the system that we're running with the particular produce we're planting in that bed. Um, 
but we also do some, like I have a big tiller. We don't have a BCS. So all of our um, no-till is all by hand. Everything is by hand. Um, but we have a huge tiller that goes on the back of our tractor if we're prepping new fields or whatever. Um, and then we'll just prep it with the big tiller. We throw our big silage tarps down. We have like four or five huge silage tarps mm -hmm. um, in the garden as far as our controls go. That is one of our controls is doing the silage tarp. And that was actually part of my um, senior thesis so many, many years ago in college. I was farming in Hawaii and actually experimented with tarping these ho horrible guinea grass fields out there uh, okay. it's a very invasive grass and the tarping after six months completely cleared up the issue and allows you to have a productive market garden in a tropical environment and since we are subtropical i just took those lessons because we are dealing with the worst weeds you guys have no idea if you're in any other climate except for the south like your weeds aren't what we have. It's a whole different situation. Yeah, we have vicious. Yeah, we have coastal grasses. We have pig weeds that like you've never seen. We have iron weed that'll mat the whole beds. My entire first year, I lost almost all of my crops because of the amount of weed pressure. But now since we've been doing no-till, we've cultivated for many, many years. Like we, our weed pressure is nothing. Um, yeah. So we have, but we're moving into a new field block this year, um, expanding a little bit with our, a food forest situation and, um, some hedgerows. And then we're going to have, um, another half of an acre of production. So that'll be great for us. Um, anyways, back to the controls, we have one, two, three, four caterpillar tunnels. Um, one of them is our nursery. And then we have one 22 by hundred foot by 12 foot tall greenhouse. And we have another one of those we just purchased. So that's going to be going up this spring. So we have two big greenhouses, four cat tunnels. Um, and we use row cover outside in the middle of winter when we're growing carrots outside. Um, what zone carrots. are you, what zone would they recommend? Think that would you say you are? We're zone eight B. Okay. So really warm. Yeah. Yeah. We are, we are really warm here. Summer is almost it's like our brutal. winter here because it's so hot. Mm -hmm. Um, and it really limits the amount of work that we can do. Like winter time, we get burned out because we work, we grind really hard in the winter, um, mm -hmm. to try to get everything where it needs to be. We've been taking a, a little bit of a break, kind yeah. of toning it down over the past two or three months. Um, and yeah, we've had good work, helpers. We're cranking out this week now. It's like the first week of spring for us, really. Yeah. Um, but in the middle of winter, we're typically trying to get projects done and stuff like that. So right now we got all of, we're putting in 30 acres of high tensile um, fencing. Um, and we're putting up the big greenhouse projects. We have a... We just bought a new shipping container and we're doing an enamel paint floor on it and turning oh. that into our washing, washing pack station. So before we had our washing pack on under, uh, underneath our barn, barn awning, but we're turning mm -hmm. that into our outside gym and yoga area. So we can like get some exercise in, in the morning, um, and get it closer away from our dogs. So now our washing pack station is centralized right in the garden. So nice. everything that we need is really like we think about time and motion studies constantly on the farm and having this washing pack station right at the beginning of our two big greenhouses where we're pulling the majority of our crops out. And then we have a direct line into our new field block. It's really efficient um, timing wise. So obviously we're going to have everything in there. Greens bubbler system. We have two greens dryer machines. We have um, two three bay sinks. 
Um, what else am I forgetting in our wash and pack station? Um, we're going to have some drying racks and stuff and they're just kind of standard, but mm-hmm. we're using a, a shipping container for it and running an awning off of the side. And um, so we'll, we'll also have our walk-in cooler in there. Yeah. So with the shipping container, cause I've always, I've done a lot of uh, designs and I actually did a design once for a farm, uh, where we actually used two shipping containers side by side. Now with that, are you cutting multiple doors in the, the container so you can have yeah. access points? We're going to have um, one access coming in. So all yep. the produce comes in one direction and then it goes into the walk-in cooler and right next to the walk-in cooler is our door. So we have inside of our workshop, we have all of our big chest freezers completely lined up mm-hmm. and we have a huge three bay cooler unit right now that we nice. actually air chill all of our chicken in. Um, so we back our truck up right to our barn. We load everything up in our CSA. It's very efficient. We designed this last year. Um, and everything just, Alyssa writes all the names on the bags and she goes over what everybody is getting. And I pack all the bags up, put them in the cooler. And then we throw that in the back of the truck. And then we just drive out right next to the garden. And then everything will be loaded out from our walk-in cooler right into the back of the truck. And we're off. So it's no messing around. Awesome. So what kind of crates do you use or containers do you use for packing shares? Um, we use a combination of stuff. Number one is the new igloo coolers um, that are out. They have like these little black hinges. They improved the design this year. So we bought a bunch of those because they're really sturdy, well-made igloo coolers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, and they're watertight. So we can put them nice. in the back of our truck and we put all of our shares in the back of that. But when we're stacking in the fridge or whatever, you know, those like U-line crates, we have like U-line crates that we use. And yep. then we also have those, what are they called? The IPC or IBC or whatever, you know, the old black style produce crates that we've all been using since the beginning oh, of time. Yes. The bulb crates. Yep. I hate those, man. They're the worst. Yes. yes. I'm so. actually about to go get a whole truckload of them only because I can get them for a buck each. They're exactly. So we yeah. just yes. got a huge stack of them and for free because we know a farmer who yep. just doesn't want them and doesn't need them anymore. He's like, take yep. as many as you want. Yeah. And we, but we have sandy soil here. So if we're harvesting with like holes in the crates, all the sand gets into everything. And we already have so much issues. Like, a greens bubbler doesn't quite do the trick for our sand. We actually have to do three different washing cycles to get all the sand, especially out of the head lettuces. And so it must be a very fine sand then. Extremely fine sand. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's the, yeah, that's very tough to get with a bubble washer, we, but we do have the best drainage. So yes, that's the yes. one positive. About it. <laughs> yes. Yes. Great drainage. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's key there. Yeah, we're actually doing a, a group order of those uh, flip top totes, which is, I think, the ones you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. We, we really like those, yeah. and they're 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 very sturdy. They've held up. They hold time. up for a long yeah, time. They're easy to wash, and yeah, anyways, twenty years will, plus. Yeah, there is so much information out there. If there are any beginning farmers listening, trying to get started doing this market garden thing, because we know that it's extremely profitable. The salad greens are very profitable. We're doing some wholesale salad accounts this year. Um, and obviously if you're doing salad, please go get a greens cutter. Don't be cutting with the Johnny's knife. Um, just spend the 500, $600 or whatever it is. Um, so if you want more information on what kind of our style of stuff, I would check out singing frogs farm. Mm -hmm. I would check out Ben Hartman's lean farm. Who else are you missing with the gardening stuff that we do? That's kind of like our style. Yeah. JM4TA on some of the stuff. Yeah. 
I mean, yeah. it's it, the, the, the market garden, well, we're not doing anything especially unique with the market garden, except for our composting. So that's the only thing, you know, a lot of most, most market gardeners import compost and we just make it on our farm. Yeah. And that's just because we have the full permaculture cycle of everything. It, yeah, all yeah. of our, all of our systems are integrated into each other in some kind of way. And it's all agroecological and beneficial, um, yeah. And, you know, I encourage people to think of, um, you know, I, not to sound like a hippie or anything, but, you know, what we're doing is very holistic um, and it starts with us as farmers. And um, if you're focusing on what makes you feel good, the food that makes you feel good, the food that helps um, heal you it's going to heal your land and your customers. And it's going to create like a system that is, um, you know, profitable. And yeah. at the end of the day, um, we, we also, I know this might sound um, like something people don't often think about, but we're very conscientious of our, of our image and how we present ourselves to our customers. You know, um, if we as customer, we're in, we're ambassadors to a lifestyle that's healthy and um, that can kind of like give strength and inspiration to our, our customer base. So we take a lot of um, time out of our week, not a ton, but just enough to like, I go to the gym and take care of myself to try to help heal any old back injuries, um, and try to stay fit and healthy and strong that way. Um, I go to jujitsu. Stre- yeah. We both do some yoga. Um, not all the time, but we try to slip a it couple in. times a week. It's important because what we're doing is really hard and stressful. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, we don't want to seem like basket cases. Sometimes we are. Yeah. Sometimes <laughs> we cry. Yes. <laughs> but it's really important for us to, you know, encourage other farmers to practice what you preach, eat your food that you grow, mm-hmm. you know, and be serious. Like I know, I know a lot of farmers who, um, you know, like show up at the cap, but show up to market buy- with the Coca-Cola. Yeah. It's like, wait, you, you know, like the, come on, mm-hmm. like, at least yeah. fake it till you make it guys. <laughs> yes, exactly. But it's, but, it's, but it is an important thing. And I think that you know, we, as a homestead, the root of our farm is in our kitchen. We ferment vegetables. We are always eating. There's always crops that we can't sell to our customers. We ferment them for ourselves and we have healthy gut bacteria. We have big meals for friends and community we, volunteers who come out. Yeah, We make our own bread. Um, we <clears throat> have, um, you know, we're all, there's always a big pot of like bone broth on the stove or something. All the time. We always have a pot of soup. Yeah. Always have a pot of bone broth. Anyways, back to the enterprises. We already kind of went over our layer hen um, situation, Mm -hmm. but yeah, we have two uh, large chicken tractors that we kind of custom built that can be towed by our tractor or a four wheeler or something like that. Um, and really, I, I mean, there's not too much to talk about. We use the Novagen chickens. I've used um, black Australorb chickens, but now we really just focus on the Novagens. Um, they're extremely productive. We noticed um, good temperament. Yeah, sometimes we'll feed them mm-hmm. a little bit higher protein and uh, in the middle of winter or something like that. But we got we have great eggs. Um, 
we have a huge pack of dogs at the farm and they're the key to our success. Without the dogs, all of our animals would be dead. <laughs> it's true. Okay. Though. So what type of dogs do you have? We have three Great Pyrenees mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and we have an Anatolian Shepherd. Yep. And they eat all raw diet from all the food that we grow at the farm. Yeah. They, we don't buy dog food. Very rarely do we buy dog food. Um, and then we have two, and, two herding dogs. But remember one quick um, thing about that. Our neighbor who we have a really good relationship with also has two great Pyrenees dogs and one of his males. Um, they go out with our um, two males in the middle of the night and they actually hunt down the coyotes together. Yeah. So we have a combination of our neighbor's dogs and our dogs. We have, a, we do have a, on that note, we do have a unique situation mm -hmm. on our farm because, um, our farm is, uh, the property that we're on is 200 acres. And then there's about a thousand acres next to us that is, oh, it was clear cut, unfortunately, several years ago. And, but now there's nobody out there. So there's a thousand acres next to us. There's probably several hundred behind yeah. us. And then there's our next door neighbor who has a small homestead um, right next to us as well. And so they, they have sheep, Dexter cattle. And yeah. Horses. I mean, we're, we're very far off the main road. We have mm -hmm. to go down pretty far. It's a quarter mile driveway. Yeah, it's a quarter so. mile driveway. Um, so we don't really have to worry about our dogs getting hit by cars. Um, and we have a lot of fenced in property. Yeah. So I, I know it's unusual, you know, to have that, like all those luxuries, not every farmer is going to have all of that. Like I totally get it, but it is, it really works well um, for us because the dogs are able to kind of function as they naturally would, which is able to roam without worrying about crossing roads and this, that, and the other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah but we don't lose important. it like we don't even lose a single chicken the dogs will tree a raccoon or coyote. we have huge coyotes coyote problems here wild dogs oh i train the dogs to um chase, chase bird. birds too which is hilarious <laughs> yes <laughs> hey thriving farmers have you checked us out on youtube lately we have a bunch of new content there including a few rants by me I uh, want to tell you, you don't want to miss them. Um, I actually go rant about, you know, some of the problems I see in our space and some of the challenges I see farmers uh, facing. So go check that out. We've got instructional videos over there as well. Talk about setting up our new farm here in Ohio and all the steps we're going to do that, as well as just tutorials and tips on best practices for all sorts of things on the farm. So go ahead, check over at Growing Farmers on YouTube and see the new content we put together for you. Well, when you say chase birds, round up the birds or chase? No, oh, oh, like chase hawks, like oh. uh, predatory birds. Yeah. Very cool. Cause that is another huge problem. And yeah. I know, let's say like, if you look at white pastures for a while there, they were losing hundreds of birds to uh, eagles. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, having that, that yeah. is, yeah. Well, it all started with a little pit bull and oh. I, trained her to um like at my old farm I yeah. trained her every time there was a hawk I had hawks and owls really bad at my old farm and I she saw me running around the farm like a crazy lady screaming and yelling 
And yeah. then she started to see like, what are you looking at? And, mm-hmm. I, <laughs> and, and, then, and then I just started saying, go get that bird. Every time I ran yeah. to go chase hogs, I say, go get that bird. And then when we came to this, when I came to this farm and we started adding more dogs and growing the dog pack, they all just taught each other that their job is to look up at the sky and bark at birds mm-hmm. and to get them away from the farm. That's so. awesome. Yeah. So we have the great peers and uh, the Anatolian shepherd, and then we have uh, two cattle dogs. So I have an older cattle dog that I've been working with for a long, she's like 11 or 12. She's always been with me. I used to have dairy goats and some dairy cattle at the other farm I managed. And uh, I actually have her trained to soft mouth a chicken. So if a chicken runs away, she can pounce on the chicken, not hurt it whatsoever. Um, it's just fun. It's really I fun. mean, yeah. I, the dogs, I'm not yeah. going to lie. Having a giant pack of dogs is a pain in the butt, but it's also really fun. And it like they're, you know, when you have three great Pyrenees lying around, like they're my therapy dogs. Like if I'm having a rough day, you can cuddle with three great fluffy white dogs. Cuddle <laughs> with three polar bears and it makes everything okay. I yes. swear. <laughs> Yeah. And we have a, um, we do have a trained blue healer that, uh, sh- she can take all the sheep out to pasture, move or move our, all of our sheep through the gates. And if I have cows up in the front field and I can, she can by herself, take our entire cattle herd and get them into a corral. Mm, wow. So it's, um, but yeah, yeah, you know, it doesn't, it does it's a hobby for us to have the dogs kind of, we, we just love dogs and animals. We love, <clears> And it doesn't happen overnight. The train, you know, if you're going to have dogs on the farm, um, I recommend people who aren't experienced with dogs to get great Pyrenees, female great Pyrenees, because they're much more malleable and they're easier mm-hmm. to train. Male great peers can be kind of tricky. I'm not going to lie. Like, I think. Yeah, you need to have some room for them. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so any you, any you, type of working dog, you have to. It's a commitment and you have to find all the resources you can to understand how the dog works and give it what it needs. And sometimes it's a firm hand, not going to lie. So, but yeah, we have, I mean, in general, we have a passion for animals. Alyssa and I both have always had this intimate connection with animals and are really an ability to almost communicate and speak with them. And it's part of the reason why we have a farm. We love it so much through and through. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that kind of goes through all of our enterprises. Um, as far as our homestead, Alyssa already talked about kind of some of the homestead stuff with the fermenting of the vegetables, our bread. We actually have a homestead flock of geese that we breed and uh, eat lots of, we, we haven't eaten too much goose meat. Yeah, but, we're letting them breed and to grow the flock a little bit. Um, so we got those guys and they're also our weeder geese. So we're, um, we're building them up. So we're actually putting in a big food forest this year with like a mm-hmm. planting couple hundred oak trees and like 50 something fruit trees and whatnot. So the geese are going to be our weeders in that system. So we're always thinking about the future all of the time. And how are we going to plug this animal enterprise into this for something like that? We're always planning six months, a year, two, three, four years in advance. We're always planning. Planning is everything. One thing I know you wanted to talk about um, that is really important to us um, is switching from the annual system to the perennial system. Yeah, th- this mm-hmm. is the biggest thing. So right now, the way that our farm is set up and the way that I set it up from the beginning was very intentional. Everything we do is extremely intentional. 
So my thought and my thought process in the beginning is, hey, I'm going to run pigs and meat birds and market garden to be able to cash flow the um, investments that I need in the sheep and the cattle. And that's not just in the genetics that really has to do with livestock trailers, trucks, corral systems, electric fencing systems watering systems like all of this infrastructure takes a lot of money so we're cash flowing all of these systems with our annual systems and annual systems are technically meat birds and <clears throat> pork because they require grain and obviously all of us who are in the regenerative agriculture community we know that we have to break this grain dependence and i truly believe that the future of food is going to be goats sheep and cattle because ruminants have the ability to obviously sequester carbon in the soil in very small amounts, build organic matter back on depleted soil systems. And when it comes to invasive plant systems, the sheep and the goats and the cows together are really great at managing these weeds that we have coming up. Mm -hmm. So in the combination with that, we want to invest in the fruit trees. We want to invest in timber crops. Um, but the thing is, when you look at somebody like a Mark Shepard, or you look at a Jeff Lawton, or somebody um, who's been doing this permaculture kind of thing for a long time, and they have an established system, like that costs a lot of money to cash flow. And you can have a normal in town job and be able to cash flow your dream farm. But for us, we wanted to be farming. So yeah. that means making the sacrifice of doing the pigs and the chickens and the annual crops until we can grow our fruit tree operation, until we can grow the cattle herd and the sheep herd. Yeah. And our grand vision is to have, you know, a couple thousand acres in production of this rotational grazing of the livestock and have huge hedgerows that we're trimming up with the livestock and managing nut crops and fruit crops with the livestock integrated underneath of these hedgerow systems. Mm -hmm. um, and that just is a matter of time, you know, things take a really long time and we're being patient with the way that we're growing our farm. We try not to take on too much and, um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, we really just believe in this perennial based uh, system and yeah, over time we want to teach this system to people. We want to be a predominant source in the U S to be a permaculture school and show people how to pull this off. Um, we need to move in this system to be able to save the planet, to be able to ensure that people are eating healthier foods in the future and corn beans and rice are not going to feed the world forever. I mean, we're yeah. all about, we're all about making, like, I think the permaculture gets a bad rap with like conventional farmers and even just your typical organic farmer, because the people, nobody has really truly shown with the exception of Richard Perkins, how to integrate it and make money. Yeah. You know, there's really not very many people who integrate permaculture thoroughly and make a good salary and a good living. And that's oh, what I, I've been about this since I started this journey 10 years ago. And it takes a long time, folks. It yeah. just takes a really long time. But the, the motivation um, that we have to be able to build the permaculture farm in a professional way that's profitable, it's the most fulfilling thing a farmer can do, in my opinion. 
Yeah, and I think you're right about the aspect of the income and the the um, profitability. Um, you know, some of these farms, some of the ones you mentioned there, they do per, they do the long term permaculture. They're still having struggle struggling to make money because it's a long haul, and that's why you add in the annual crops, which can help you cash flow that really really quickly. Or if you don't, you're just working an off-farm job for multiple years and knowing that basically this permaculture or the food forest side of things is going to take a long time to actually give you the income. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I mean, we just need to really come up with the cash flow solutions and those solutions are the most profitable things we know of right now are the pigs and the chickens and the annual cropping systems in the garden. And um, you know, we also really do focus on this homestead thing. So we're not buying food from the store. We really try to reduce our budget. Like Alyssa and I live a simple life and we try to not buy all kinds of crazy stuff all the time. We try to be as minimalist as possible, even though we have a homestead and we need like tons of cooking equipment. <laughs> well, not tons. We, you know, sometimes it seems like our kitchen is more complicated. Yeah, but we than only it have is. a small kitchen. We yeah. converted an old dairy barn into a livable space for us. Um, and you know, we're like an old dairy barn has like a pit where the people stand underneath the cows. We put a floor over that and okay. that's our bedroom and our office space. Um, and the pit will eventually be like our root cellar. Yeah. So, okay. One of our root cellars. And then we have like a 20 by 20 kitchen. It's just still raw concrete on the floors, block walls that we painted all kinds of crazy colors. Yeah. And uh, we have a guest bedroom. Um, yeah. It's really simple. And we just try to keep the living situation cheap and simple. We don't have a big house. We don't have a mortgage. We have a free lease on our property right now. So it's, you know, that's part of the the way things work, especially when you're a young farmer, you need to figure out what resources you have. What kind of resources do you have at your disposal that's, that will allow you to be able to put the cash flow into your investment portfolio, which once again is the long-term perennial systems for us. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that because that's something that I think a lot of people struggle with. Either they come into the farming with, you know, a lot of school debt or they just have, and you, and, uh, or they're just spending massive amounts of money to buy the property and the farming is farmland is not cheap out here in Ohio. We're looking at about six to $8,000 an acre for, for good farmland. Um, and especially if you want to do pasture-based farming, that means you're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars or you, um, either a lease or on purchasing that property. So I think that the key is to, once again, it goes back to community and there are people who are going to be out there aging farmers. And we have this issue. The majority of farmers are over the age of 50. And honestly, mm -hmm. I think the majority of them are over the age of 70 at this point, they need to sell their farms to people, to somebody. Yeah. Well, and some of them, um, I think if, if you can figure out a way to almost market yourself as a helper to farmers. Um, I think that there's a lot more farmers out there who would be willing to almost have like a lease to own, a lease to own situation in exchange for assistance on the farm as, they're, mm -hmm. as they grow older. Um, there's, so, I, there's so many, you know, I, Chase mentioned that we're using a 
an old dairy farm as our farm. And I really do think that, especially in the Midwest, there are a lot of dairy farms, small dairies, um, that have really great structure and thoughtful drainage systems. Um, mm -hmm. so that, you know, they're most dairy farms are very cognizant of like how water flows and all of this. Um, and I think that it could be beneficial for people to research old dairy farms, um, and contact these old timers and say, Hey, look, can I help you clean up your farm in exchange for using your, uh, a yeah. quarter, a quarter acre as a garden. And I really think that that, gain the trust and then like slowly expand and be like hey i really need this to be a free lease because i would like to buy your farm one day and if yeah. you give me a free lease for five years i can get my business up and running and buy your farm from you and it's going to be there for a long time yeah and that's exactly what we're doing my uncle owns the property so it, our whole farm really works out because it is a it kind of is a family business and there's a lot of people involved in helping us we have a lot of support from our family friends. and friends and you know yeah it's um but it but i will say that it took us a while to get there there was a lot of people who thought we were all crazy so yes. and, and then eventually when you show them the numbers and you say, hey, look, we're making 200K a year. We're, we're making six figures now when yeah. revenue. And even though we're reinvesting with the majority of our profit back into the farm, like eventually yeah. money, the money talks. So yeah, money always talks. And I think that's something you need to bring back to folks. And uh, you know, these farmers too, that are, that are, that have these farms, so many of them retire and then they decide to lease the land out to the local big ag farmer. I mean, that's yeah. what's happening here is there's a farmer here. I know him. He's a great guy. Um, he does some field work for me over 8,000 acres and they only own a fraction of that. And mm -hmm. unfortunately it's easier for them to just get the check for 150 to $200 a year or share crop the with the farmer and then just uh, take a chance on a young new farmer. Yeah. So that's where we have to figure out is how do we start affecting those tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of farmers so they do give the young farmers a chance instead of just you know perpetuating the old broken system. Well, I think the key is to um, not be uh, a know-it-all when you go into the situation. Like the, yeah. uh, a lot of young farmers that are, go in, they think they know everything and they discredit. And uh, I mean, I, cause I've seen it myself. A lot of them are just straight up rude to uh -huh. old, old people who, um, you know, maybe. They have different views than you do about agriculture and man, I mean, we have so many relationships with like conventional farmers all the time. I had um, my early mentor when I was a teenager as a conventional farmer and I got on the combine with him and he showed me how to drive tractors and all of these skills are so necessary in recognizing that these farmers are just doing the best that they can. They are doing what they know. They're doing the best that they can. Alyssa and I were at a conventional beef auction with really high-end Angus genetics last weekend. And it's like, they're all the same as us. They're all farmers. They're all busting their butts and yeah. they have days that they want to cry too, just <laughs> like you guys. And yeah. you know, the thing is, I think when it comes to these relationships though, it comes down to confidence and it comes down to professionalism too. go and knock on people's doors, communicate with them, go to that farm that hasn't been in production in a year or two and knock on the door and say, Hey, this is what I'm interested in. This is who I am. This is what I'm about. Wear a button down shirt don't look like a hippie with dreadlocks. 
And I mean, I have long hair now. I've been growing my hair out. I cut, I cut it in the early years. Of in the, the early days, he had short <laughs> <Yes>. hair. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, you got to be professional with it. And you have to be communicative with the landowners. Like we had a lease on another 200 acres where we were running cattle two years ago. And it did not work out. We failed at it utterly. And it was too long of a drive. It was too far away from our house. We had horrible communication with the landowner. They had different expectations than what we wrote down in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Like the thing is just communicate with people and show so much enthusiasm. We love what we do. We're here to make a difference in the world. Please help us and support us. And we're going to change this world. And you just have to have that attitude with all the conventional people. Yeah. Well, and I think part of it too, you just said is these farmers, they're doing the best they can. They're doing what they know. And if you come in and basically say, hey, what you've been doing for the last 25, 30 years, that's destroying the climate. So uh, move over so I can start farming. That obviously is going to hurt anyone to do that. They're going to um, be like, get out of here, you hippie. Yeah. So you've got to have, yeah, you got to have that, that, that finesse. Um, And I think the other thing I liked what you said is over communicate. So right now we're doing this, uh, this farm stand and we're leasing the property. So literally because of the back and forth with the city and the development plan, we've had three different iterations. So iteration three just got finalized yesterday. The first thing I did after my architect sent me the drawing was walk over to the landowner who actually has a business across the street as well. And, uh, and just walked in and said, Hey, this is where we are currently. What are your thoughts? We'll talk through a couple of different things. And he was like, okay, yeah, this, this, and this is good. Um, but that over communication is so key because I failed at that miserably myself as well. And mm-hmm. I almost got kicked off a piece of land because of it. I, you know, it was one of those meetings no one wants to go to, but you, I had to go to, and I had to kind of mm-hmm. like, you know, grovel for a little bit. And thankfully they were very understanding landowners and he just needed me to understand that I wasn't to do anything on the property that he didn't approve of, um, which again, it was one of those things I didn't think what I was doing was anyway, but um, it's the over communication, which is so necessary. And I think that also goes with the same thing with your customers and at the mm-hmm. farmer's market, showing up to a farmer's market with dirty clothes and you smell and it, that's not okay. You're not going to be making $2,000 a market like, and you know, you got to be out there. You got to communicate with your customers, communicate with investors, get out there in the community. If you're going to grow a business, like Alyssa and I want to be in the next couple of years, we want to be making half a million dollars off of our farm. Mm -hmm. And the only way that we're going to do that is through communication with community members to help support us and invest in us, invest their time and their money and support us emotionally too to be able to get to this point so we can actually buy this farm that's 200 acres. It's very expensive. And there's a lot of overhead that, you know, we, we have in our system right now. It costs a lot of money. And yeah, I mean, I, Chase and I, in addition to like listening in the constant education that we do um, with researching things for our farm and how to make each enterprise better, um, we're constantly trying to improve things. Um, but we're also always trying to improve ourselves and be better business people. And, um, I like, we listen to, we listen to a lot of like, you know, Tony Robbins types, motivation stuff. And I know it sounds goofy and silly sometimes Mm -hmm. when you have, when to put something on like that, but there have been times in my farm career where I literally had to brainwash myself to get up out of bed and do my job. 
you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, I don't want to, I, I always try to like, keep it real in the sense that like, it's not puppies and kittens and rainbows all the time on the farm. It's very difficult. You know, I had a, we're pig farmers and, you know, pigs do weird things. Sometimes I had a sow try to eat her babies once. And we, I was like, yeah. Get that you know, it's like, yeah. there's really some farming at times can be very morbid and sad. And there, um, when you're a livestock farmer, there's a lot of um, sadness that can come, but I do think that there's healing and there's always things that you can learn through each one of those experiences. So I always try to like, kind of bring it around because, um, I don't want to pretend like our life is a Disney land story. You know, it's not, it's hard. Well, Um, yeah. And I think one thing too, to point out there is the, it's tough. The, the, you have to slog through it. Um, you, you want to listen to the Tony Robbins, the motivation, because this business that we're in is not an instant gratification business. We are working, we are building equity, you are working through it, and then you get the results. And I think you look at, I mean, even a lot of people look at like these, the billionaires out there, you look at the Elon Musk, and you look at the Jeff Bezos, and Jeff Bezos was spent years trying to figure out how to just sell books online. Before. Exactly. And he was sleeping in his office. I mean, <laughs> we yeah. all know the this thing story. is like, I yeah. started this farm by sleeping out of a canvas tent. <laughs> and I was literally cooking in a dirt pit in the ground by myself in the middle of winter and bathing in cold, <laughs> ice cold buckets of water. I didn't like, have heat in my first farmhouse. So in the middle of the winter. The thing is like, <laughs> you all crazy. Gotta suck it up. <laughs> You know, and that, that's part of the fun of it, though. Like, I well, would... I, I, you know, as a as a as a woman, I, I don't play this as a woman card often, but um, I have my own farming journey separate from my husband. And as a girl, there is a lot, you know, you're, you're taught that there's a lot of things um, that girls don't do and whether or not you want to admit it. Um, I still suck at using a chainsaw. I'm really not good at it. It's not I, safe for you. No. I highly recommend reciprocating <laughs> saws for small, petite women to use. Reciprocating saws are amazing. Um, <laughs> but anyways, um, I my, the point being is I have grown so much as a woman, um, as a person, because of the mental hardness that I've had to go through and find it deep within myself, like the strength to like do lift really heavy things or move heavy things or do, do hard things. Like you can do hard things. Um, and that is just kind of what I tell myself over and over when I see something like, Oh, I can't do that. I'm not doing that or whatever. It's like, you can do hard things. Alyssa. you've done a lot of hard things. Yeah. All right. Well, I that's a great place, I think, to kind of wrap up a little bit. So give us any final thoughts before we end, because I know we've gone long. Yeah, sorry. Okay. Sorry. No, that's really no, great. this is good. This is good. I love this interview. This is I it's raw, it's honest, it's it's and it's you guys are doing some really cool stuff. Let's see. Number one is your farm is a business, okay? Mm-hmm. Always keep that in mind and make the sacrifices in the beginning to allow your business to flourish and be successful. And that means working every day. <laughs> and for us, like Alyssa mentioned, like we listen to these motivational talks, we listen to business podcasts, we read business books, we read, 
we try to educate ourselves on everything and the information is out there. So if you guys can spend an hour doing education a day, and I'm not talking about listening to podcasts, that's a given when you're out in the field working, listen to every single farming podcast out there, listen to all the YouTube videos, watch all the videos. There's so much content out there now. Like when I started farming, there was not the content out there. I just read Joel Salatin's Mm -hmm. like how to farm book, which put me down like not the best path. Because the first farm I started totally failed 10 years ago. <laughs> well, whatever. And, yeah. and, you know, it's, um, I read that, the permaculture book, but now it's like, we have YouTube, we have the podcast and guess what? You can pay a consultant, please go pay consultants to get you on the right path because you can spend one, $2,000. That's going to save you a hundred thousand. Yeah. yeah. Also, I, I would suggest, I say too, that um, it's really important to kind of not market yourself before you have a product. I know a lot of starting farmers, um, they pay all this money. They have this beautiful social media thing and they do all this stuff and body. they like uh, do all this marketing when they don't have a product. And I really think it's important when you're starting out to put your nose to the grindstone and say, I am not going to sell myself and oversell myself Mm -hmm. until I know what I'm doing and I I can actually like perform and Mm -hmm. get get my crop whatever it is out there we do not really do Instagram that much we don't do Facebook or anything like that a lot of our stuff is just direct marketing once again get out and talk to the customers face-to-face interaction make phone calls like I don't want to rely on this like social media game and things like that we just want to communicate with our customers authentically and I think that's a huge part in our yeah. success. So and far. I mean, I'm not knocking Instagram because I know that there's a lot of farmers who do make money through Instagram <laughs> or whatever. Um, but we right now are eventually maybe we'll have some sort of social media content type thing. But I think right now we care more about what's going on at our farm. And, you know, social media, Instagram's kind of a time suck, whether you want to admit it or not. It is totally. Yeah. I see so many farmers just posting on there for other farmers. And I'm like, um, actually, are you selling to these other farmers or are you selling to your customers? Um, so that's the big thing I see is, is, you know, they're, they're focusing on the wrong thing, but I think the thing too, is like you like, so skipping the social game, but going direct to customers because you're selling a high ticket offer. Yeah. We're selling like at $75 a week. That's a heck of a lot more than someone going to the farmer's market and buying a $6 dozen eggs or even a $4 dozen eggs. So you can afford to do that lot more touch marketing because you know that the long-term return is going to be much better on that. Joe Salatin talks about this, about having not having a thousand customers, but having a hundred customers and focusing on that. And I really took that to heart because the thing is, if we have a hundred CSA members, that's $7,500 a week that we're bringing in just from the CSA. That does not count restaurant accounts. That doesn't count um, our local markets and little grocery stores that we sell to. So, um, you know, the thing is like, if you can generate multiple enterprises and sell all of your products to one individual, like that saves a ton of time in as far as time and motion studies, it's really the most efficient way to actually, you know, make a good profit. Yeah. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Our goal is, so we just built a new funnel for our farm. And I, I, what I liked what you said about really not pushing and marketing yourself until you're up and going, like I am struggling so much with that because right now I want to be, you know, blanketing the airwaves, doing all these ads and stuff to pull people in, but we don't even have a farm stand yet. I mean, that's still, that's going to get approved hopefully next Tuesday night. And then we can start building that, but it's really tough to not be doing that marketing right now. Um, but selling more to people. So like one of the things we're going to be doing this year is we're going to be doing free uh, gardening classes. And then we're going to have our fertilizer to sell them. And then we're also going to have garden tilling to sell them. And then we're going to have transplants to sell them. And then we can also have like a on-site garden consultation to sell them as well. So, you know, you're taking one customer and giving four or five different products that you can sell that one customer and having, instead of having to go get five customers. Totally. That's great. Um, so yeah, and right now we live in, we live in a very small community, so that will work for us to do like the garden tilling. If we were like, we're servicing a large area that would never work, but we mm -hmm. live, a, we're actually an urban farm. So that makes sense for us, but totally. uh, yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, absolutely. That's so exciting for you. Oh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Like and, and the community is already starting to get behind it really well. So I'm, uh, yeah, it's, it's gonna, it's a lot of investment. It's a lot of sleepless nights because you're trying to think through all the different options and stuff. But it's uh, it's when it's up and running, and it's it's that dream. I, I like I love what you said earlier. So you're slogging, you're slogging, you're slogging because you can see the dream. And the thing is, so many people can't see that dream, and so that's why they get stuck with just uh, thinking small. I think because they don't see that long term of what it could be. Absolutely. Just just yesterday, um, you know, we had horrible rain here for a whole week, and. Um, it just inches. A week, we have two, a, two, two weeks, weeks of flooding. Oh my goodness. It was so Ugh. the flooding is so bad. Thankfully our garden is okay. But you know, when we have, we have a lot of livestock and the soil really takes a beating when we have that much, um, it's just the mud and everything's wet. And I mean, I was really We're behind on I was, two weeks on our project schedule. Yeah. I was really starting to kind of feel like imposter syndrome. You're like, this is, I'm a terrible farmer as yeah. everything looks horrible, you know? <laughs> But then yesterday, you know, the sun came out. I went um, for a walk through the farm to kind of check on everything. And the animals were so happy and everyone's grazing and the, the sun was going over the hillside. And, you know, it was just, I just really felt a lot, like I felt renewed um, and just try to find those moments on your farm, even during the hard times, because um, God knows I have a hard time doing it sometimes, but um it is really fulfilling what we do. Yep, I would say so. Really fulfilling. And there are a lot of, there's a lot of people out there on the internet and everybody gets these ads all the time on Facebook or Instagram or whatever of, oh, you can be a millionaire. You can be a billionaire. This is how you're going to be super successful and da, da, da. And the way I see it, and this is a bit of a Buddhist philosophy, but you know, do what you believe in, do what is authentic to you. And there is no reason why a farmer should not be one of those extremely successful people out there. Mm -hmm. Farming is an amazing, amazing career path. And look at Joel Salatin, look what he has accomplished guys. I mean, look what Jordan Green has accomplished in such a short period of time to grow his farm. Like we are going to be the future of this country and we just need to show it and be successful out there. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the point is focus on the business side, run those numbers, because if you don't, you won't be successful. It's the yeah. business that's going to make the money, not that you can grow a, a chicken or a, some mushrooms. Yeah. Oh, and I also recommend to people too, just as a side note um, to buy, yeah, just buy QuickBooks mm -hmm. online. 
and do yourself a favor. And even when you're first starting out, choose one or two cards that you make all of your purchases on Mm -hmm. to keep things organized. And I know that that seems like, you, you know, like a given, you know, but I'm not an accountant and I'm not very good at accounting, but I, I pay a monthly thing for QuickBooks online and my books are on schedule and I don't have to stress about that for three months, which is what I used to do. So yeah. Yeah. Shout out real, real quick. Shout out. Thank you, Greg, Judy, for having an awesome uh, YouTube channel. Love the YouTube channel. (laughs) Yes. That guy, that, that his channel is legit. I need to get him on the podcast too. That would be a lot of fun. Um, and I mean, guys, just don't forget that like creating your dream farm and seeing these big giant farms with the white barns and all of this stuff, it takes 20 to 30 years. Be patient, meditate. <laughs> yes. And once and do it slowly, one step at a time. Yep. yep. Alyssa, anything else? Is no, that I'm it? I'm good. I'm good. Favorite farm tool? Yes. Reciprocating saw. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yes. and um, we use Milwaukee tools and they're just amazing. Battery operated, everything portable. Oh, uh, yeah. Never, so. never underestimate the power of a box of deck screws and uh, impact driver. Yes, yes. <laughs> you no. get so much done. Yes. <laughs> My favorite farm tool, I think, might be um, our F350 with the flatbed. <laughs> Yeah, the trailer. Yeah, yeah we did. Trailer. We did buy a really nice trailer this year. So. Because otherwise, we can't get livestock feed to the farm. We can't get. We're yeah. we are in, currently importing hay bales until we're doing our own hay production and uh, like all of the equipment and everything that we need to build the infrastructure at the farm. Like I was able to get these used greenhouses, and I saved like forty thousand dollars by being able to get used greenhouses and pick up the material on our big trailer. And I mean, it's just a having some heavy yeah. equipment game changer yeah absolutely we're, we're like the opposite of all the other farmers who are like stay small use a bcs you know <laughs> but i think that comes back to the aspect of every farm is going to be different yeah totally yeah and uh, a nice truck is always fun <laughs> i will admit <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Chase and Alyssa, so much for coming on today. Really appreciate your time and your um, your wisdom and sharing your story. Thank hey, you, Michael. Thank you so much. So much love to everybody out there in the farming universe. Good luck, everyone. All right. <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Hey, Thriving Farmers. Next week on the podcast, I have a very special guest for us. Jeff Moyer with the Rodale Institute will be gracing the airwaves to share all about regenerative organic, transitioning to organic, the role of crimper, and changing your community and how they view food. So join me next week as I interview Jeff Moyer. So there you have it. Another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.